Uh, this morning, we're in for a real treat. Um, I think some of you will remember John Henderson. He spoke at our men's retreat several years ago. Uh, been thinking about this this week. I've, I've known John Henderson for almost 25 years, uh, back when I was working in the insurance world. Uh, he was a missionary from our church back in Portland, Oregon, where I was part of. Um, and I've, I consider him a dear friend and mentor for many years. And this guy has helped me navigate a lot of waters in life. Uh, he's served in a variety of capacities. He's been a professional baseball player, served with athletes in action. Uh, he's also uh, basically been involved in a lot of work in New Zealand, planted a church there. And since 1997, he has been the director of, of leadership development in the Eastern European countries in Russia. In fact, just recently got back from Turkey. So hopefully we won't fall asleep here. I think he's still recovering from a little jet lag. But John Henderson, we are so glad to have you this morning. You want to just come and bring the word today. Good to have you with us. You know, it's uh, a little bit crazy to me. I have been, uh, my wife and I have been serving with crew for 37 years this month. And what's crazy to me about it is when I joined the staff of crew, I joined the uh, sports ministry, Athletes in Action, and in my mind at the time was, I'm going to do this for a couple of years and then go get a real job. What an adventure, 37 years later and the story's not over yet. I'm uh, really glad for a couple of reasons to be here with you this morning. One, uh, Grant alluded to the fact that he and I go way back. Uh, he and I, uh, for many, many years, have had what I call a iron sharpening relationship. Uh, and so most of that relationship, I'd say, these days is maintained from a distance. And so any day, anytime I can get some FaceTime with Grant, it's a good day. Also, uh, I have been aware uh, of FBC, the church here. I know that God is in your midst. I know that God is using you to proclaim Christ in the community. I pray for you. And so putting those two things together, it's very special for me to be here this morning with you, to open God's Word and study together. Uh, the home church where, uh, where I attend, I live in Austin now, uh, the church that I go to is Austin Ridge Bible Church, and we just finished an 18-month study on the book of Genesis, an amazing study. And for some reason, this time through the book of Genesis, I particularly identified and kind of resonated with Joseph's life, as, as we see it in the last 13 chapters of Genesis. And... Uh, Maybe by way of introduction, we'll let Joseph introduce us to our, our study this morning. When you and I think about the story of Joseph, we tend to think of it as a story of great blessing and a story where the powerful sovereignty of God is on display in all aspects, in politics, in individual lives, in circumstances, that his sovereignty reigns. But the reason that we see the story that way is because we read the whole story and we know how it ends. And as we were studying uh, Joseph uh, in uh, our church last several months, it was dawning on me that, you know, for Joseph, who is living this story out moment by moment and day by day, there were probably times when it didn't feel all that blessed. And it didn't always feel like the sovereign hand of God was clearly being revealed. 
And so, for example, if we were to stop Joseph's story at the point where his brothers betray him and they throw him into a pit, if we stop Joseph's story right there, then it's a very different story, isn't it? Or if we stop the story where Joseph's brothers uh, sell him into slavery to the traitors on the highway, it's a very different story. Or if we stop Joseph's story when he's thrown into prison in Egypt because of the false accusations that are levied against him by Potiphar's wife, if we stop the story there, it's a very different story. And if Joseph stops the story there, he never gets to Genesis 45, where he makes some amazing statements to his brothers. And he says to them, do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. It wasn't you who sent me, but God. And then, of course, we get to, to Genesis 50, 20. And he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result and the preservation of many lives. If Joseph stops the story too soon, he never gets to those awesome confessions. And it wasn't until Joseph lived out the story all the way to the end that he could make sense of the pieces. We could take the same with Peter. Peter's sitting around a little campfire. There's a little servant girl who points to him and says, you were one of those followers of Jesus. And for the third time that night, Peter denies even knowing Jesus. If we stop Peter's story right there, it's a very different story. And if we stop the story with Jesus in the tomb, it's a very different story. So by now, you probably catch my drift. We're going to talk about not stopping the story too soon this morning, and we're going to do it from 2 Peter chapter 3. So if you are not there yet, turn there, and uh, let me ask the Lord to open our minds and hearts to His Word for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before You. with anticipation, with an expectation that you will meet with us this morning, that you will speak into our hearts exactly where we have need. Our greatest need always is to hear from you. And throughout this room, there are all kinds of different needs, and, and you know exactly what all they are. And I pray that you would meet every single person that you would have a word for them this morning. That this time would be a fragrant aroma to you and a blessing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do as we walk through uh, the first 13 verses of 2 Peter 3 is I'd like to answer the question, what is it that we need to know when we're tempted to stop the story? Because we get tempted to stop the story. When things get hard, things get difficult, they're unmet expectations, our heart is breaking over something, there's a temptation to think, wow, the story's done. And so when we come to that point, what are some things that would be helpful for us to know? And uh, 
And I want to, uh, to draw out uh, a number of things here that I think Peter tells us. And the first one is this. When we're tempted to stop the story, remember the promises of God. Verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter that I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I, uh, I love the fact that Peter has no problem reminding them of things that they already know. And I think as humans, we're very forgetful. This wasn't new news to them, but it was things that perhaps... If they did not keep in the forefront of their mind, they would lose, they would miss out, and that would have implications in their life. He says, I wrote you a letter before, now I'm writing you a second time. The purpose that I'm writing is to stir you up by way of reminder. And what my message is to you, remember. I like that he doesn't mind that. The promise that Peter has in mind here, there are myriads of promises in the scripture, but the promise that he has in mind here as he is speaking to these believers is that promise of of Jesus Christ, that one who came out of heaven, who lived and walked among us, who went to the cross and died a death to pay the penalty of sin for all the world. He rose again. We witnessed him. He ascended to heaven. That Jesus promised that he is coming back and that he is coming back to usher in the kingdom of righteousness. That's the promise he has in mind here. In his first letter, says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope is future through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance future, which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, is reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. It's future. Those of you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day, future. That day is coming. It's not here yet. It's coming. And he says, remember the promise. It's coming. So one of the things that that I think is helpful to me when I find myself in that place where I'm tempted to think, is the story over? Is to remember the promises of God. God's not done yet. A second thing that helps is Don't be discouraged by mockers. Look at verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's worthy to note that there have always been mockers. 
there will always be mockers. That's no new thing. The fact that there are mockers should not be an unsettling thing. There have always been mockers. There will always be mockers. And in this case, and I think perhaps in our day as well, sometimes what the mockers question is this. You Christians, all you talk about, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. People have lived. People have died. Generations have come. Generations have gone. Everything goes on the way it's always gone on. And the conclusion they come to is because he hasn't come back yet. He's not coming back. Bad conclusion. But that's an example of ending the story too soon. The story's not over yet. And so when the mockers come, there is this challenge of, I don't see it. I don't see it. People, don't, he, people have come and gone, come and gone. He's not here. He's not coming. And they mock. In his first letter, he writes to the believer, he says, I want you to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That word sanctify just simply means set apart. In our hearts are a whole host of of things that, that draw our affections, that draw our energies, that draw our time. Our heart's full of all kinds of things. And he says, what I want you to do is take Christ, set him apart in your heart from all of those other things. There's everything else, and then there's Jesus. And he is the preeminent one. Set him apart in your life. And then he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. I like this, with gentleness and reverence. We don't need to be harsh and obnoxious. But we do need to give a reason for why we have hope. The world out there is hopeless. And we need to be prepared to give a, uh, an account for our hope, yet with gentleness and, and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, i.e., by the mockers, Those who revile you in your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So when we come to that moment when I might be tempted, is the story over? Peter is saying, remember God's promises. And two, don't be discouraged by mockers. Three, I would suggest this. Understand that it is dangerous to stop the story too soon. It's a dangerous move. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, the mockers, when the mockers come to the conclusion that Jesus hasn't come back yet, therefore he's not coming, when they conclude this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being renewed, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Mockers will come and mockers will go. 
The earth was here before the mockers of our generation arrived, and if, and if Christ doesn't come back, they're going to go off the scene and the world will still be here. But more importantly, mockers come and mockers go, but God remains. And this God, this one, this creator who spoke into existence everything that we know, he is the one who is also reserving this creation for a time of judgment and a ushering in of his kingdom of righteousness. And so to the mockers and to us, it is very dangerous to stop the story too soon. Because it often leads to foolish and costly conclusions. So remember God's promises. Don't be discouraged by the mockers. Understand it's dangerous to stop the story too soon. A fourth thing, what do we need to know when we're faced with that temptation? Recognize that the Lord is not slow. Just patient. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You realize what he's saying there. From God's perspective, Jesus has only been gone a couple of days. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus hasn't come back yet, not because he's slow. He hasn't come back yet because he's busy. He's preoccupied with things. He, he hasn't come back yet, not because he's lazy. No, he hasn't come back yet because he's lovingly patient. He hasn't come back yet because he's merciful. Because when he comes back, there is on the one hand a day of judgment for those who have rejected him. On the other hand, there's a great day of, of, of heaven being ushered in. But he's waiting. He's patiently waiting for more to come to faith, for those to leave their unbelief and to come to, into faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And there may be some of you here this morning that, that you're here because you're investigating Jesus. Great. Glad you're here. This is a great place to do that. But it might very be possible that, that one of the reasons Jesus hasn't come back is because he's waiting for you. Patiently, lovingly, mercifully waiting for you. I'm glad he waited for me. So he's not slow. He's not busy. He's not preoccupied. He's not lazy. He's lovingly patient. The, uh, the erroneous assumption then is that, well, if he hasn't come, he's not coming, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. Be sure about that. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements with, will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Oh, do not make a mistake that the mockers made saying the story's over. God's not done yet. The story has not ended yet. And so we recognize that the Lord's not slow. Just patient. 
And lastly, I would suggest that uh, one of the things we need to know or to remember when, when we consider that the story feels over, we know the ultimate outcome. We know what the ultimate outcome is. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The, this was a passage where uh, God used significantly in my own life to lead me into the ministry. This whole chapter, but specifically that verse right there. Because I couldn't get away from that verse. And, and the conviction that God was, was speaking to my heart about was, how can I know everything I know, and then live as if I don't know it. We don't know all the details of all the specifics of how the end times are going to happen, but we know the big picture. We know how it's going to end. And I can't live my life as if I don't know that. Verse 12, we're looking for the hastening and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, there it is, started that in verse 1, his promise. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're waiting for. We know the answer to the fundamental questions that puzzle most of mankind, don't we? We know where we came from. We know why we're here. We know what the purpose of life is. We know where we're going. We have the answers to the questions that puzzle mankind. And those answers for us provide hope that God is at work and the story is not done. About three years ago, I was in uh, Lviv, Ukraine, uh, doing an outreach at, at the university there. Um, met a young man who uh, was a, a Christ follower. Had been a Christ follower for a few years at that point. Great, great. Just loved being around him. His name is Roman. Roman, as a student, was already having a ministry of evangelism and discipleship with other students at the Lviv campus. This is out in western Ukraine. God, he sensed that God had called him to devote his life to the full-time ministry, and so he decides he wants to join our crew staff in Ukraine. So he joins staff, goes through new staff training, raises all of his financial support, and gets contacted by the Ukrainian military that they're drafting him into the military. And they send him straight away to officer training, Six months later, he's in Donetsk on the Eastern Front. Now, I'm assuming you're aware, the last 18 months or so, there's a significant conflict, uh, war conflict going on between Russia and Ukraine on the Eastern border. Roman was called there. And, you know, for, for us, we think, God, like, really? You've called this young man into ministry? He already had a significant ministry at the University of Students at Lviv. He, he sensed your call. He came on staff. He's gone completely, completely uh, successfully uh, completed training. He uh, raised all the support. You brought all that in. And he's going to war? Really, God? And there was all kinds of emotions that we were feeling for Roman. And, and he went and was there uh, 
all through uh, last summer and last fall. I saw Roman a couple weeks ago when we were at this conference together. He had a little bit of a, of a leave uh, from Ukraine. And he's, sort of, and he's telling some of his story. He's saying, well, guys, he said, I, I, I am overseeing 30 men. And conditions, especially since winter came, the conditions are horrible. It's cold. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough clothing. We don't have enough equipment. These men are scared. They have had 5,000 deaths and 10,000 wounded so far. And these guys are scared. And, and Roman is telling the story about, and I'm leading Bible studies with them. And I'm leading prayer times with them. And these men are so um, aware of their need, that they're responding to Jesus. He said, one guy came to me and said, said, Roman, what church do you go to? Because after this is over, I want to go to church with you and I want to meet your Jesus. And Roman said in Joseph-esque like terms, Roman said, God sent me to Donetsk and the Eastern Front on this conflict between Ukraine and Russia because he had ministry for me there that I knew nothing about. I am here for this specific moment, and God has called me. He's back now. Uh, He's back in Donetsk, and uh, we don't know how much longer. Pray for him. Pray for his men. Pray for safety. Pray for peace in this uh, conflict. God is at work. There is an ultimate outcome that oftentimes is so bigger than my own perspective. You know, um, on a personal note, you and I face circumstances that sometimes tempt us to wonder if the story is over. Um, hard things, struggling things, things that break our hearts, unmet expectations, things we didn't plan on. And the reason where this becomes dangerous is that if we give in to the temptation that the story is over, what we do is we create a greenhouse effect for things like discouragement and anxiety and hopelessness. And when those things take root in our life and they grow out of control in our life, then one of the things that happens is it destroys a vibrant component of our faith, and that vibrant component is anticipation. anticipation. There's expectation that there's more to come. God's not done yet. That is a vibrant component of our faith. And when we are robbed of anticipation, then we start to wonder. We start to doubt. We start to question, is God really still at work in my life and in my circumstances? Is He really there? The year was 2003. Uh, Mary and I had been living in Budapest, Hungary, in Eastern Europe six years. Early in 2003, I walked into the office of Larry Thompson, who was the director of all the crew ministries in Eastern Europe and Russia. And he was one of the guys I reported to. I walked into Larry's office because my... I walked into his office with 
eyes full of tears because I was there to inform him that Mary and I had to move back to the States. You see, for almost the entire six years that we lived in Budapest, my wife Mary struggled with a very uh, deteriorating medical condition that was beginning to rob her of her mobility. In fact, the year after we got back, she spent most of that year in a wheelchair. It had got that bad. And so I'm in tears walking into Larry's office. There's, there's no other choice but to say we, we have to go back. And, and, and what, we came back hoping that there would be a medical answer that would re- return Mary to good health and would also return us back to Budapest, Hungary, and Eastern Europe and Russia. That's where we wanted to be. That's where we felt called. That's where we wanted to give our lives. That decision to move back to the States was the hardest decision that Mary and I ever made. My wife is um, a theater and arts major. I'm a sports guy. It's unusual that we ever even got together. Here was the the final statement that she made that convinced me we had to go back. And the the fact that she knew this to this day is still startling to me because it was a sports analogy. So she's talking my language. She says, it's as if I'm in the boxing ring and I'm getting beat up by my opponent and I'm just getting hit after hit after hit and I don't want to give up. I don't want to leave. I don't want to quit. And so I keep trying to swing back, but I'm just getting pulverized. And she said, secretly, in my heart, I wish someone would throw in the towel for me. And she knew that. But I instantly knew I was alone. I had to throw in the towel so that we could go back and hopefully give her the help that we were trusting that God would provide. Just so you know, she's learned to manage it. Uh, But to this day, God's not healed her. And so we continue to live in Austin, Texas. You see, in addition to uh, facing an uncertain future regarding Mary's health, the other thing that made this so difficult was the thought that our time in Eastern Europe was over. It was devastating to us. Because it felt like the story was over. Now, I'll be honest with you, um, I struggled with God a couple years about this. And as always happened, he wins, but um, I had to kind of go through a process with him. Both, um, you see, both Mary and I felt so sure that everything that had been in our lives up to that point had been in preparation for us serving in Eastern Europe. Evangelism, discipleship, training the laborers that God was raising up. So convinced. So, yeah, I'm having a little struggle with God about this. And here's how some of my conversations went. All right, Lord, weren't you the one that said the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few? And who can we send? And did we not put our hand up and say, send us, we'll go? Lord, you can fix this. You can heal Mary. And, oh, by the way, Lord... When I said to you that I would go anywhere and I would do anything you said, I did not mean going back to the United States. 
That was not the deal. And yet, here I am, and at that time, very discouraged, very worried, very hopeless. Mary refused to let the story be over. She tenaciously clung to God and, and her fight with fibromyalgia, which was the medical condition that she has. She fought to maintain anticipation that while the story might be changing, it's not over. So the next several years, she accomplishes great things. Goes back to school, gets a master's degree in counseling. Then she goes through an arduous licensing process to where she now becomes a licensed counselor. And now she is counseling missionaries all over the world via Skype. With a unique ability to connect with them because of her own experience. And if that wasn't enough, she wrote two books. The first one was her, uh, her story of her health decline where she offers uh, encouragement and hope for other people who are in chronic illness situations. The second one just came out. It's about how to cultivate joy in your life regardless of your circumstances. Now, here's the note. Humanly speaking, those things would not have happened in the old story. For me, by the grace of God, I was allowed to continue being involved in the Great Commission in Eastern Europe and Russia, a dream that I thought was dying. And so now, uh, every other month, I'm on a plane somewhere to Eastern Europe. And I continue to be involved in evangelism with university students. I continue to be involved in discipleship, mentoring, uh, development of the labors God's raising up over there. Okay, I have a long commute. And it's not dead. It's not dead. And, interestingly enough, living in the States, I now have had the opportunity to help with a number of crew, mission, organization, and, and ministry efforts here in the States that, again, humanly speaking, none of that would have happened in the old story. Now, unless I leave you with the wrong impression, I feel I need to clarify. Neither Mary or I would choose the story we're now living. Seriously, if you asked us to be honest, we like the old story better. I like the story where I had a healthy life. I like the story where we were living and ministering together in Eastern Europe. I like that story. So I'm not saying to you this morning that if you just wait long enough, if you just have enough perseverance and enough faith, if you just don't stop the story too soon, then eventually everything will turn out just the way you want. I can't tell you that. But what I will affirm to you this morning is that Philippians 2.13 is absolutely true. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you may be here this morning, and you're in a place right now where you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling hopeless, uh, you're feeling your heart is breaking over some issue that's not expected. Maybe your story is not unfolding the way you thought. 
I affirm to you that while God may be in the process of changing your story, by no means is that story over because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God bless you. Let me pray. Father, you are the ultimate reason for hope. And we are blessed people that you have opened our eyes to understand the message of your Son and that you have forgiven us and you have taken us from darkness and you brought us into your light. And we have hope. Father, thank you that you're not done. Thank you that your story will be fulfilled exactly as you have said it would. And I pray between now and the time that you return or we go to be with you, Father, give us eyes to see the people around us. Let us be the fragrance of Jesus to people. Let us, let us be with people with gentleness and reverence, being able to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And I pray especially, Father, for those that are here that might be struggling or in some circumstances that are hard, Father, I know. I pray you'd comfort them with, with the peace that only you can. Our words are so shallow with each other. And Father, there's a deep comfort that you can bring by your spirit and the confirmation of your word, and I pray you do that. Father, we love you. But even as we say that, we know that we, we love you only because you first loved us. In Jesus' name.